You're with John Cleary on Sunday nights on ABC Radio. Our guest, Ian Proven. Ian is the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver. He was born and educated in the United Kingdom, a PhD from Cambridge. I believe he's a life member of Clare College in Cambridge, or Clare Hall. But he's the author of several rather provocative books in the field of religion, including Convenient Myths and Seriously Dangerous Religion. That one's an assessment of the Old Testament. Ian Proven, welcome to Sunday Nights. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Look, both books I mentioned have rather provocative titles, and both suggest that the way we read the past is critical to shaping the present. Yeah, I believe that's absolutely right. And I think the loss of an historical memory, a loss of a cultural memory, is a a very debilitating and damaging thing. That's something that constantly gets discussed. Even pop culture is recognising it these days. They tend to say, you know, that so much is going on that we tend to view things horizontally, that we haven't got the time any longer to go deep. Yeah, and, and the problem with that is that we end up with a lot of information, but not very much wisdom. We don't know how to parse the information or how to organize it or even how to rank it, you know, hierarchically and make sense of it. Well, let's talk about your approach, particularly in the, in the two books I mentioned. Let's first talk about convenient myths, the axial age, dark green religion and the world that never was. Now, the contemporary world has been shaped by... Uh, one or two potent myths, and these are the ones you deal with. Karl Jasper's construct of the Axial Age envisions a common past around 800 to 200 BC, at the time when Western society emerged, or Western society as we understand it. The basics emerged from Buddhism to Judaism and Confucianism as being the, the principal world religions that emerge in this period. And they seem to share, or Jaspers argues, they seem to share a common value set. I think they're best superbly evoked by Gore Vidal in that wonderful novel, Creation. Mm -hmm. The idea of an axial age, though, when our modern sensibility began to emerge, has always been contentious. It suggests that our mental world had a transition similar to that to our physical world, with the Bronze Age giving way to the Iron Age, etc. And as I mentioned, in the hands of a novelist like Gore Vidal, it does have some power you suggest it's problematic. I think it is problematic. It, it has power because it is something that we would rather like to believe, and for good reasons, for noble reasons, because I think the idea that religion causes conflict is a, is a, is a largely, widely believed uh, idea in the present time. And Jaspers, of course, is suggesting that we have more commonality in the past than, than we have difference. The problem with it is that simply empirically speaking, that these various uh, worldviews are not at all uh, similar to each other uh, when you actually analyse them. And it's only at the level of very broad generalisation that, that, that we get away with this idea that somehow we, we all come from a sort of common starting ground. I just don't think that's true. Well, l- l- let's take the Gore Vidal generalisation. He uses it by suggesting he places an aged philosopher come diplomat in Athens at the time of Pericles who looks back to himself as a young man in the courts of the East, in, in, in Babylon and other places where he happened to come in contact with... Uh, on, journeys that had taken him into China, mm. into India at the emergence of, of Buddhism, into China in the age of Confucian. And Vidal is suggesting that the trade routes actually were bringing these ideas mm. into a common 
meeting ground. And mm. so it's only natural that perhaps over a thousand years, or, so, or perhaps four or five hundred years, as Vidal is suggesting, that these things do begin to share ideas. And you mm. do get, because of trade routes and other things, an emerging of a, a shared consciousness. There are elements of truth to that, because if there were not, the argument would not be at all plausible. So, for example, both Pythagoras and Plato in Greece believed in reincarnation. How they came to believe in that is a mystery, but the ancient world was much more cosmopolitan than we think. It's not impossible that these ideas travelled. And yet, had a Greek philosopher spoken to Confucius and then both of them bumped into a Hebrew prophet at the bar later that evening, I think there would have been a lot of mutual incomprehension at the same time because uh, the common elements, once you integrate them into an entire worldview very often come to mean and to signify very different things. Yes, that underlying, you're suggesting that what we draw out of Jaspers is this idea that somehow, whatever your faith, uh, we're, we're all on sort of varied paths, but essentially going up the same mountain. That's, that, that's what he suggests in a very sophisticated way. And then a lot of other folks have built on that in a rather less sophisticated way. And you get this easygoing pluralism where... None of it really matters, actually, because it's all just the same. But people typically mean it's all just the same and we can ignore it, actually. And I think it's far more challenging to us. It ought to be far more challenging to us than that. Are you suggesting that the concept of an axial age itself is problematic or what we've inferred out of that is problematic? I think there's no question that the 6th century or thereabouts was one of the most astonishing centuries. The 6th century BC was one of the most astonishing centuries in world history. For whatever reason, all across the the then known world, um, you have these reactions against, rebellions against what I call old religions, so the world of the myths and the gods and a kind of polytheistic animism. So for sure, there are similar things going on by way of reaction. But what comes out of those in terms of concrete proposals, those proposals are very, very different from each other. Because it does seem that there is some sort of transition line. You do have the old animistic traditions that, that, that say that it's most sophisticated to be Hinduism, mm -hmm. but out of that comes Buddhism, which is regarded as more modern in mm -hmm. its, its understanding. And at a similar time, you get the emergence of the Hebrew prophets mm -hmm. that, is, that marks a, a sort of sea change in a way that religious tradition is, is developing. So that there does seem to be yeah. this common boundary line. In terms of the quest, I think that's right. I, I think that in their various ways, they're all asking the question, behind the multiplicity of things, behind change, what is the ultimate reality? I think that's true. But my uh, belief is that the answers that they're giving to that question are actually very, very different from each other. And uh, that what Confucius has to say and what uh, the Buddha had to say and what a prophet like Jeremiah had to say in response to that question, these are very different options. And they, they produce very different societies, in fact, and we can still see that nowadays. India is not China and China is not Australia that God is not one. Uh, in that sense, God is not one, that's for sure. So they're looking for the one, but they end up with uh, rather plural and rather different approaches to the question. And the challenge for the present is that if you do take that view about religion in the present, then multi-faith dialogue itself becomes 
highly problematic because you end up looking for something that's not there. Indeed, and ironically, although a lot of this is about preventing misunderstanding and violence, if you begin with false premises, you're going to get even further misunderstanding. And at some point, conflict, because people will simply feel, you're not getting me, you're not listening. You're simply not understanding, it's your fault. Indeed. For example, you Western people are telling me what it means to be a true Muslim, for example. Well, pardon me, I think I know that already is is the legitimate response to that. So what is the lesson that we bring out of that for the present? What does it tell us about how we should deal with the diversity of religious traditions in the present? Well, that's a very interesting question because one popular answer since the Enlightenment has been the notion of the naked public square, that we need to deal with this by everyone excluding their so-called prejudices, their religious framework, and entering into this so-called neutral zone in the middle, as it were, where we leave everything that's really important to us at the door. Um, I don't we think, do not judge. Well, yes, but the trouble is there's always a dominating story in there and it simply becomes the secularist story, which is now no longer one story, but somehow the fundamental truth of the matter. Um, I've, uh, my idea of, of genuine pluralism is what I call the clothed public square, where we all enter exactly as we are, um, but we have rules of engagement. For example, we do try to persuade we don't kill each other. Uh, we're not allowed to, to make special pleading towards things that other folks don't accept. So we, we have rules of engagement for civilized, genuinely pluralist society, which is challenging. And I think it's uh, because it's challenging, people tend to shrink away from it and go for something simpler. Yes, we, we need to begin to look for those things we can share in common and acknowledge that there are differences which can be discussed, but they are genuine differences. Indeed, and that's really where the notion of the plural society in the West arose from. It arose really in the 17th century on the back of horrific religious violence in Europe. And people came to the conclusion, we can't live like this. We have to find a different way of going ahead. And... Uh, that's really, I think, still a good model, that, that we're not looking for utopia here. We're looking for a way of getting on well together while retaining our fundamental convictions and to, to a certain legitimate extent being left alone to, to live the kind of life that we feel right to live. And that we can construct a world which allows for difference but still provides for a society to function and develop. Indeed, and, and that's a very noble aspiration, but if we begin by denying somebody else's legitimacy or forcing them into a mould that we have created, that's never going to be a very good beginning for genuine conversation and, and not even for the toleration of difference. In other words, difference has to be recognised before you can even talk about tolerating it. Um, and, and so instead of these easygoing generalizations, I think we have to be far more rigorous and indeed become uh, more educated once again about these matters. Using a, a, a present controversy, uh, more than a controversy, a present genuine dilemma that perhaps highlights this as an illustration is the French approach of laicite which tends to say religion disappears from the public square. We acknowledge that it's there, but it, it can't be recognised. And that, in a way, 
leaves you with more problems than it does if you take the other approach. Yes, I mean, the, the size of that misjudgment is now becoming clear in France, I think. It simply isn't true. And those who believe in the secularization hypothesis, whereby left to itself, religion in the modern world will die on the vine, as it were, I think it's fairly obvious that's a colossal misjudgment, actually. So that's not a viable way of handling this, this issue. What you're doing is laying out a groundwork, and others are coming to a similar position, but taking seriously a groundwork for recognising a genuinely multi-faith world where faiths are not living in isolated chambers but are interacting on a daily suburban basis is going to become a reality, and we've got to be able to find a way of dealing with that seriously. Well, we must or we shall not survive because the idea that we can isolate these worldviews in their continents or their countries, in this global community that we're now living in, quite apart from whether it's one's own suburb yet, I mean, sooner or later, it probably will. Mm. And so the idea that we can uh, solve this problem by going back to a different kind of world, I just think is unrealistic. So we have to grasp the nettle, but that will really require a lot more of us as individuals with regard to our knowledge base uh, and so on, first of all. There's a need for quite a, a retrieval, I think, of cultural memory and intellectual history and so on. We can't know how to deal with the other unless we know ourselves. Well, absolutely, and history is not a subject. History is what we're in. And uh, you know, this is one of the fundamental problems, perhaps, with even how we... Uh, are taught history, it can appear to be a very dull subject matter of not much relevance. But we stand in that same stream with these earlier people. And indeed, we are the inheritors of all of the stuff we're talking about as far back as the 6th century BC, whether we realise it or not. Our guest on Sunday night is Dr Ian Proven, Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver. He's the author of Convenient Myths, The Axial Age, Dark Green Religion and A World That Never Was. We've dealt briefly with the Axial Age, Dark Green Religion. Define your terms, please. Well, that's uh, interesting. That's not my terminology. I borrowed that terminology from Bron Taylor, a, a very interesting author who has been writing on the renewed rise of a kind of older, uh, old religion kind of approach, which is very popular really among those who care about the planet or ecologically committed and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, it is bound up with its own myths. And uh, the myth of dark green religion is that we were all happier and more prosperous and far more enlightened back in the Paleolithic era than we are now, that civilization is a huge mistake and we ought to deconstruct it as quickly as possible for the sake of the planet. That's yeah, the basic gist. Uh, yes, that the, the tribal cultures... Uh, ones that followed perhaps animistic traditions, were closer to nature uh, because they were concerned with the cycle of the seasons, the renewal of everything. So they are, they are much better much better people, not beset by the blight of original sin, as perhaps a traditional Christianity would call it. These are pre-fall civilizations. Um, there's a certain sort of... Well, if one could want to be cheeky. There's a certain fairies at the bottom of the garden view of this in, in factual, concrete terms. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> the fairies at the bottom of the garden language may be a little provocative, <laughs> but I would say that there's a very poor empirical basis for such beliefs. Um, 
again, if one actually analyzes the question empirically, as with the pluralist religions question, we discover there are elements of truth, obviously, in what's being said. Um, but there is quite a bit of romantic, utopian, kind of backward projection going on, I'm afraid, in, in that whole way of thinking. The evidence, uh, anthropologically and archaeologically, is that humanity's path to where we are now has been difficult and wrought with conflict from the get-go. Absolutely. Uh, one example of this would be the widely shared belief that ancient uh, pre-modern, as we sometimes call them, primitive peoples, that they were somehow less violent than we are now. And I think there's very little reason to accept that as a broad generalization. Violence has been a feature of uh, human society, as far as we can tell, right from the beginning, in fact. And even if you look at those tribal societies that exist still in the present, albeit marginally uh, touched by uh, Western influences, the history of those individual cultures, so far as we can study them, is beset by the same difficulties that beset violence in the modern era. That is, wars, squabbles, tribal differences, family differences, uh, particularly those surrounding um, clan, have have been there forever. That's right. I mean, what we call ethnic cleansing, for example, that's not a new phenomenon. That's something that, unfortunately, groups of people have perpetrated in other groups of people for a long, long time. So that would be one element, the myth of the non-violent early human society. And then the myth of the ecologically wise earlier society would be another one. Again, very little reason to accept that, uh, empirically speaking. That when we found a patch of ground, we want to clear it and put the plants in that we know will feed us. Well, I mean, people, first of all, indeed, need to survive and feed their families and so on. And if ancient peoples were more ecological, it was largely because they lacked the technology to do as much damage as we can do. We're much more effective at doing damage now. That's the real difference between ourselves and our ancient forebears, I think. And indeed, there is some sort of... um scientific discussion about the reason that the large mammals disappeared at the end of the ice age then the argument is did they die through extinction or or hunting was it a natural or a Human-induced Absolutely, and, and certainly in North America, I think the evidence is rather compelling that the human element there was huge, and it certainly was in a place like New Zealand, for example. Absolutely yeah. massive impact by the early settlers there. On these the, are the Maori settlers as well as the later European settlers? Yes, it's, yeah. not, it's not just the Europeans who, who were problematic in that sense, absolutely. Um, if you look at the levels of extinction of flora and fauna, in New Zealand before the Europeans arrived. It's massive. The same is certainly true of North America. Uh, So, yeah, this is, uh, again, it's just uh, something that's widely believed but actually turns out not to be true. So how does understanding this help us today? Because we are facing human-induced warming. The temperatures are going up. The seas are rising. Desertification is increasing in some places. Uh, The world is not looking healthy. How does understanding that help the present condition? Well, I think that these are very compelling contemporary ethical questions, and we do have to address them. But I don't believe that basing our response to these modern problems on romantic myths about the past will help us. And indeed, the opposite is likely to happen, that if we do base our moral imperatives on these ancient stories, and then people discover that these stories are not true... 
obviously that's going to be rather counterproductive. So I'm absolutely with those who say, yes, we have to learn how to live here in a, in a better way and, and more with more care for creation. I'm absolutely with, with those folks. I just think it gets bound up with a lot of stuff that's really not very helpful. Just as, in some ways, a story out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, such as Noah's Ark, can be usefully deployed if understood in its context, but if understood in either a directly fundamentalist way or in a way which has some allusion to present condition, doesn't help us very much at all. No, and once again, we're on the same theme in a way, aren't we? Understanding the past well in its own terms, uh, trying to be fair, trying to be realistic... Understanding the past is crucial, and one way or the other, the past will shape our present decisions and uh, our present ideals, our present plans and policies. So if we don't understand it as well as we can, we're going to have a deficient set of skills for engaging with the world that confronts us now. You're also suggesting in Dark Green Religion that is, well, it, the problematic word here or the word that interests you is religion. That is, what is the problem here with that sort of religion or that sort of religious view? And I guess it takes us back to sort of romanticised visions of Druidism and other things. Well, the main problem is that the assumption appears to be that because people lived close to nature, they were innately somehow more wise about it and more caring. But of the studies that have been done on this subject by academics, I mean, one of the most striking discoveries is that these ancient peoples don't have words equivalent to our words like ecology and, and so on and so forth. In order to understand that we need to do something to uh, rescue the world, as it were, there needs to be some idea that our actions are decisive in the first place. That itself is a matter of a particular worldview. So let me give you an example. The Plains Indians believed that no matter how many bison they killed, on the following year, a whole new bunch of bison would emerge from a great cave underground. So there was no notion of scarcity, and there was certainly no notion that their actions had any impact on the world. Understandably, for an ancient people, there's no reason to think that. Well, if that's your worldview, then of course uh, your plan ecologically, environmentally, is going to look rather different than if you're working from a modern scientific point of view. So just a tiny example of the assumptions that are often made, I think, in this area, which are very unhelpful. This actually provides a segue into uh, your other book, uh, Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, because the way the Genesis creation story is interpreted has become something of a handball issue in this. It's thrown backwards mm. and forwards when we get to debates about care for creation and the way spirituality can help inform our view of the environment. Mm. Well, indeed, and uh, the Genesis story actually has quite a bit uh, to say of relevance to this discussion. So, for example, the Genesis story presents the world, the nature of the world, as being sacred space. It presents this metaphor of the world as a divine temple where God lives, and therefore human beings are here not to ravage the entire enterprise, but in fact to look after it. And when you read the Genesis story in its ancient context, that becomes particularly clear. The problem with a lot of our reading of Genesis has been that we have read it intuitively in a modern way without doing the hard work 
of understanding where it came from and what people were saying in their own context, in their own language, according to their own literary conventions. There are two Genesis stories. There's the first one, which people say is, or scholars say, is generally a priestly um, reconstruction of the story for temple ritual. Mm. The other one, the second chapter, is, is much more the campfire yarn mm. told around by perhaps an earlier culture about who they are and why they are. Mm. How do these fit together and how do, how do we intelligently read them? I think they're certainly designed to be read together. I mean, I don't think they were put together just because there was a space in the scroll, you know, and somebody thought we'll dump these two things together. Quite the contrary. I, I think the first of those stories in emphasizing the transcendence of God, which is one of the things it's doing, is making the point God is not the world and the world is not God. Which So it's over against animism and pantheism. The second story is then a bit more relaxed, a bit more anthropomorphic, and has God making things like a potter would make something out of the earth, for example. And so I actually think that a little bit like the four Gospels later in the New Testament, uh, these accounts are, are intended to be mutually complementary, to give you different perspectives on the same topic, and to give you a rather more complex, nuanced, whole perspective on creation. And you're suggesting in the book that because over the last 30 or 40 years, the way we've, whatever, taught Sunday school or, or experienced ourselves as a society, that we've decided that the whole Old Testament is really problematic. Let's just talk about the nice Jesus and what he did. And, and we just put that other stuff in a basket. But that unless we actually understand this stuff, we don't understand who Jesus was. We don't understand what the Jewish tradition that Jesus sees himself as in some way a fulfillment of, is about. Absolutely, and this is really a very old problem. It goes right back to a fellow called Marcion back in the 2nd century AD, who first proposed that the early church just cut loose the Old Testament because he didn't like quite a bit of what it said. And it's been a recurring theme right through the ages. And it Full became, of bloody battles and well, uh, rape and pillage. Indeed, indeed. If, if one wants to read just those bits, <laughs> that's true. But a responsible reading of any literature, I think, accepts that you read the parts in the light of the whole and you, you try to develop an empathy for the whole and and so on. And so the idea that Christians in particular can cut the Old Testament loose is deeply problematic because Christ actually gave these scriptures to his followers as their guide for life and faith. So from a Christian point of view, that's a bit of a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. And in terms of our understanding of the civilization of which we are a part, the very phrase Judeo-Christian tradition, usually linked with Greek and Roman tradition, describes who and what we are for many people. Well, that is very largely true, and there is a kind of a synthesis going on there. Our culture has been a product of those two traditions, the Greek and the Judeo-Christian, banging up against each other and informing each other, and not always uh, in a very good way, necessarily. My personal view is the Greeks have had too much influence uh, in various ways, not not always very helpfully. But, I mean, this is the branch of the tree upon which we sit. And I think if we think we can take a saw and just cut away the Judeo-Christian background to our 
Western culture that we're very sadly mistaken. It, it will raise all sorts of questions about who we are, and it will make the first question we began with about talking to each other about who we are very problematic because Muslims sure know who they are, for example. Um, so who are we then, the post-Christian Western folks? Uh, again, I think people are naive and largely... Uh, increasingly ignorant of the branch upon which they sit, I'm afraid. You discern 10 strands or 10 ideas which you think are essential to our understanding of the Old Testament and uniquely useful for us today. Just briefly, outline, the, perhaps we've only got time for two or three, the, the, the ones that you think most critical. Well, um, that second book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, is uh, set up, the question it sets up is, suppose we take 10 big questions that serious philosophies and religions have always asked and have provided answers to, and we interrogate the Old Testament with, with those questions, what do we come up with? And the advantage is you can immediately then do a compare and contrast with other philosophies and, and get clarity on the both the similarities and the profound differences. So I begin with the question, what is the world? What are we to make of the world? We're kind of thrust into it and we're asked to make sense of it and we're given some ideas by our parents and our tribes and our families about what it looks like. But what is it in the end? And then I transition to the connected idea who is God or what are the gods or that range of questions. And then the, the one of the big questions that follows on from that is how do we describe and account for evil and suffering? Uh, all the great religions and philosophical traditions have wrestled with that. And then we move by degrees through the book to questions of the human person. Um, who am I in this story? And to politics, of course, who are we? What is the good society? What is it we think we're aiming for and why? And we all have views on that, but we do not typically sit back and reflect on them and ask, where did they come from? How valid are they? And why should I believe those things? And in fact, many of them, given the current state of political confusion in the world, are becoming lively questions again, whether it's what happened with Brexit in Europe, what's happening with Donald Trump in mm -hmm. the United States. It's taking about, it's back to questions about what is the nature of the society we want and why are some groups feeling left out? Indeed, it always comes back to these questions. And once again, if we think we can just play on the beach and have a nice time and ignore them all, then, of course, it's just not the case. We always come back to these questions because every cosmology, every view of the world is tied up to some idea of the gods or the non-gods. And all of those are tied to an anthropology, and that produces a politics and an ethics, and they come as package deals. And we can either be clear about that or confused about it, but we will have convictions. Uh, it's just that increasingly, I'm afraid, our educational systems do not put people in a good position even to understand their own intuitions on these matters and to raise them up for critical reflection. Uh, that's rather deadly. And it can even affect very serious matters like foreign policy, for example. Uh, I mean, if you get these philosophical religious questions wrong and you have a large army that you can send overseas to invade countries and so on, then you're going to make very profound mistakes. And in our daily politics, it takes us to things that are being argued and discussed as we speak here today. Things like 
the nature of the social contract. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship of the person to their society? What are the responsibilities we have one to each other in society? They they are deeply philosophical questions. They're not simply economic questions. No, unfortunately, they are made to appear uh, like economic questions. And the answer to almost every question in some quarters in our various uh, Western countries now is, you know, what effect does it have on the GDP? Well, that's one important question. But of course, it's a very narrow question. It can become a a soul-crushing question if it's the only question ever asked. And if all we're doing in our educational systems is training people to be economic cogs in the great machine, and we're not giving them any ability to think about their duty as citizens, their personhood, why we're here and what we're trying to do, then of course we're letting down vast numbers of younger people. And we're, then we express surprise when they develop a nihilistic uh, non-participatory approach to politics, for example. We shouldn't be surprised. We created the situation in the first place. Ian Provett, we've run out of time. We've barely scratched the surface of a couple of fascinating conversations. It's been great to have you with us on Sunday night. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast of Sunday nights on ABC Local Radio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>